0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'm going to be talking about two Dominican saints, St. Saint Thomas Aquinas and St. Catherine of Siena. on um, Their spirituality and theology of Eucharistic devotion and praxis, that is the way in which the Eucharist enabled them to conform their lives and their hearts to Jesus Christ. So we'll be talking about the human person and um, how we might speak about the human person theologically according to both of those saints. We'll also be talking about the sacrament of the Eucharist proper, that is, what it is and how it might relate to the life of sanctity. And we'll also talk about what it means to act, that is, to act morally as a human person, not in a moralistic sense so much as... um, a way which leads towards divinization, a way which leads towards divine life, and how the sacramental economy, and in a particular way the Eucharist, leads us into um, a deeper mode of participation, we might say, with, with the Trinity itself. Okay, so there are three basic parts um, to this talk. So I've been told I have about 30 minutes or so. So I'll plan to conclude about a quarter of and then take some questions, if that sounds good. Uh, so the first part, uh, I want to talk about the idea of image and likeness and how Catherine of Siena and Aquinas, how the two of them use image and likeness to talk about the human person in relation to God. So that's part one. Uh, the second part will be Aquinas on the Eucharist proper. So we'll explore not all of Aquinas' Eucharistic theology, but some pieces of it that are directly relevant to understanding what it means to say that, well, all sacraments are signs, but the Eucharist in a, in a particular way is a special kind of liturgical and sacramental sign. So what it means to be a sign, for the Eucharist to be a sign. Um, And in that context, what it means to say that the Eucharist is a mode of conformity to Christ. We'll talk a little bit about the real presence, of course, uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation. But building on that, we'll develop a way of thinking about the, the Eucharist as a divinizing reality, as a participatory reality, something which draws us into the heart of the Trinity itself. Um, the third, the third section, the final section, I want to talk about, uh, this will draw up heavily on of Siena, um, and how we can see a spirituality of cruciform participation, that is a deepening participation in the cross itself, as connected to the liturgy, as connected to uh, the whole spirituality of the Christian life, and what's happening to us in a very real sense in sanctifying grace, and how Catherine in a special way sees all of that as connected to the the sacraments in general, but most especially the Eucharist. Okay, Uh, so let's start with uh, section one. So image and likeness, when we say that the human person is made in the image and likeness of God, what we mean to say is that something of the Trinity itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is marked upon the human soul in a special way. Saint Catherine of Siena uses the idea of image and likeness to speak about the human person as rational in relation to God. So if you look in the prologue of her dialogues, she talks about the, the rational creature as dignified and beautiful, far beyond the beauty of all other elements within creation, as beautiful and good and dignified as those are on their own terms. But the, to be rational for Catherine is to have a kind of special dignity among creative things and to discover the dignity of the rational person, means to discover ourselves in relationship to God. Now, all things, of course, stand in relation to God. Um, Anything that is, that has being, that has the first act of being, um, that exists rather than not existing, uh, stands in some kind of relationship to God as creator and first cause. But to be a human person means, well, to do something more than just be. It means to be in a certain way. all created being, of course, is divided by what Aquinas will call active potency. That is to say, there's a difference between that something it is, rather than it not being, and the possibilities you might associate with it. So what could it be? How could it be? In what way should it be? When we talk about morality for the human person, there's often a, a, tem- a tendency or even a temptation to reduce, if you will, our moral language to a simple uh, list of rules, let's say, a sort of extrinsicism, which simply grounds the, dig- the dignity of the human person in um, uh, following those same rules. Uh, now, I mean, you should follow the rules, don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, but the, the real trick, though, for Aquinas and for Catherine as well, is to see those same rules, those moral principles, as actually interior, and intrinsic ordering principles of the human person. So to be more human, uh, to actuate, if you will, the potency within our human nature means to be in a certain way. So the question of how we should be is actually of vital significance for us. How should we be? What should we be? We know that we're human persons; that much is pretty clear. Um, but what, what should we do with that? How should we be? Uh, for Catherine, and here she's building on a long tradition in the the West—not just scholastic authors, but people like Saint Augustine uh, and many other voices in the Latin uh, patristic tradition. Uh, to be in a certain way, right? Uh, to be a human person and to flourish as a human person, means to be ever more deeply a kind of image of the Trinity. Okay, so what does that mean? Um, this idea of image and likeness, Catherine makes a distinction here uh, between two, um, two kinds of image or even two types of clothing. Uh, so if you imagine someone is wearing some kind of garment, as we all are, uh, in, some, in some fashion, she uses that image of the person and then what they're wearing as a way to talk about what Aquinas will call first and second act, or the, the fact that you are and how you should be. Uh, so her distinction goes as follows. So just by creation, we bear the image and likeness of the Trinity. Uh, so that much we just have just because we're human and we're human persons as opposed to rocks or dolphins or bears or whatever else, all of which are good, but they're not human. And so they're not made in the image of the Trinity in the same way because they don't have the mark of reason within themselves. The second type of the way of being uh, is a way of, of beauty in which those clothed in the wedding garment of charity find union through love. So charity in this sense for Catherine we might think of it as a kind of, uh, well, I don't know, how you, however you might think about charity. It's certainly something that comes up in the Bible, something that the church talks about. But here she's using uh, charity as a kind of wedding garment. It's a kind of clothing of the human person. And so it's it's like a precious fabric. She goes on and on about the, the way in which charity is um, is a kind of particular type of garment, right? And uh, something that's made uh, very carefully over time uh, that would take a long time to make take a lot of care and a lot of attention. And so charity is like a precious fabric, the purity of which is woven from many threads. All of the virtues woven together form the garment of charity. And so if you imagine yourself sewing, I'm not very good at sewing, maybe some of you are, Um, but um, even if you're not very good at sewing, uh, think, think about anything that would take a great deal of skill and a great deal of time to create or make um, you can think about the moral life in the same terms as kind of weaving, as it were, a series of acts into a unified whole. So, if we go to Aquinas, we can get some principles that might help us to, um, to understand this more clearly. Charity for Aquinas is the queen of all the virtues precisely because it, form, it gives the kind of form, if you will, to the moral life, it gives the kind of context or shape to the moral life. How should we be? How should our actions be directed? Well, charity provides the kind of form and purpose. And when we use Catherine's metaphor, we see something of the finality as well that charity is made for. It's made for spousal union in her mind, right? It's a preparation for the kingdom of heaven. It's a preparation for a life in which we, as a church and as individuals, are espoused to the Lamb of God. Okay. So charity is a way of thinking about that sort of um, sense of potentiality or potency or possibility associated with the human person in which image and likeness come to the fore and we begin to act in a more humanizing way that draws us and prepares us really for full communion with the Trinity in heaven. Okay. Um, I'll say a few more things about image and likeness and then we'll move to Aquinas. One more note from Catherine about spiritual growth. So we've seen how image and likeness have to do with the specific identity of the human person as rational. And uh, there's a lot we can say about that. Aquinas and Augustine um, have a lot to say about what it means to be rational as a human person. And it's really different from more modern, particularly ideas from the early modern period about rationalism, right? Uh, We can talk more about that if you're interested. But this is a specific understanding of reason which has a divinizing teleology to it. To be more rational is to be closer to God for Aquinas and Augustine and for St. Catherine as well. Uh, And that type of growth, again, for Catherine, you can use the image of being clothed in charity. Another image she uses uh, is that the Trinity is a kind of mirror. Right? If you look in the mirror, you see a reflection of yourself. Uh, But what Catherine wants us to see more deeply is the image in the mirror. And the Trinity is the mirror, as it were. So if you want to know what it means to be fully human and be drawn more deeply, well, into our own identity as image, uh, you look to the exemplar, you look to the mirror itself, and the divine nature ends up providing us with this kind of reference point for the moral life. Okay, one final idea from Catherine, and then we'll move on to Aquinas. That's the idea of a tree planted in the soil. She loves metaphors, she's got a thousand of them, right? (laughs) Uh, So this has to do with a tree planted in the soil. Now, the spiritual life, in the sense for Catherine, you're the tree, right? Um, And humility itself is the soil. right? Um, And so she has a very elaborate metaphor of all the different branches representing different virtues and different acts within the moral life. But all of that is rooted in a particular kind of soil. The soil of humility, if you break it down for St. Catherine, is really what allows us to see ourselves as image. right? Um, There's a certain type of pride Uh, which we're probably too familiar with because of original sin, which is resistant to recognizing the truth of image within ourselves. We might might not be used to using that language to describe it, but we have um, an irrational, perhaps, (laughs) an unreasonable sense of self-autonomy, which thinks of ourselves without reference to the mirror, right? without reference to the divine nature. I decide for myself what's best. I make my own plans. I decide what constitutes excellence for me. Um, There is a certain degree of uh, activity that's proper to us in self-determination, but that's couched within the divine agency by which we're made and towards which we're directed. So there's no understanding of the human person which is complete, which is outside that frame of reference, uh, that frame of reference which is the divine nature and the trinity itself. So, um, Catherine's metaphor concludes in this way. What type of soil do you want to be planted in? Um, You want to be planted in soil contained in a a pot or something like that, which has to be circular, right? Again, she loves metaphors, right? So, if you imagine soil that was contained in something that was not circular, it wouldn't be contained at all. It would just be all over the floor, right? (laughs) Uh, So, finite things have a beginning and an end, right? Uh, A starting and a stopping. Uh, That's us, that's our plans, as it were, right? Um, But when we allow our finitude to be refashioned and shaped, and and in fact, the infinity of God, to be a soil in which we're rooted, the the divine nature, without beginning or end, forms the the circular pot, if you will, for the soil of humility. Okay, Um, all that is to say that being rooted in God's life is the goal for Catherine. And the more deeply we're rooted in that and in nothing else, Uh, the more fully the tree begins to grow and flower. Okay, so what does all this have to do with the Eucharist? Um, I have some thoughts I'd like to share with you from Aquinas' theology of the Eucharist. Aquinas has a great deal to say about the Eucharist. You'll be hearing a lot about it this this weekend. Um, So I have a couple points here that uh, I want to draw out. One has to do with the Eucharist as a sacrament. And the other has to do with the Eucharist as a means of conformity to Jesus Christ. Um, Remember, the title of this talk is Aquinas and Catherine of Siena, on Conformity to Christ in the Eucharist. So for the Eucharist to be of value to us, which it is, it has to be a means of accomplishing in some way that union with divine life, the repotting of the soil uh, of our lives, right? Uh, the, the The replanting of the roots of our hearts, within the divine nature. Somehow the Eucharist, as with all the sacraments, have to be a means by which that's being accomplished. Now all the sacraments, whether we talk about the Eucharist or baptism, holy orders, or uh, last uh, anointing of the sick, or or anything else you wanna name, uh, any of the big seven, all of these are what Aquinas is gonna call instrumental causes. Uh, That is to say that they are like a stick in the hand of a carpenter being used, as it were, to accomplish some particular purpose. And what's being grasped in the hand is the outward sign. So the water of baptism, for example, or uh, the bread and wine of the Eucharist. Now, you might ask, uh, to extend the metaphor, right, Uh, whose hand are they in? Well, it's the humanity of Christ, right? Uh, And this is an example that Aquinas gets from Aristotle, that um, you can think about a conjoint instrumental cause as uh, an arm attached to a body. Right? There's a sense in which my arm does, for the most part, whatever I tell it to do, right? <laughs> uh, goes where I want it to go and does what I want it to do. But it's really the mind or the soul that's controlling that. Right? And so that's a conjoint instrument. So this would be a, uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, and if you have questions, I'm happy to answer them at the conclusion of this talk. But the humanity of Christ is that conjoint instrument. But the signs, the material stuff, if you will, of all the sacraments, so again, water, and baptism, oil, in anointing um, bread and wine of the Eucharist is what gets picked up by the hand and used, as it were. So the signs, in this sense, are um, they're not just symbols in in a um, a more generic sense. Some types of symbolism are just references to the past. A lot of symbols are are really at the level of social construct. That is, they exist at a level... um, in which they maybe they remind us socially of something that happened in the past those can be quite useful if you've ever been to a parade for example that commemorates veterans day or something like that that's an excellent thing right Uh, but that really is kind of a social construct in a natural sense are there symbols involved absolutely right Um, are those symbols instrumental causes not really right Uh, so there's a difference between symbols and signs that we use every day to remind us of either important ideas or important events from the past and the type of sacramental instrumentality that's having a real divinizing effect on us just by being the sort of object that the symbol is acting upon right Uh, so that's what we mean when we say that the new law sacraments are causes of grace or they affect what they signify so the eucharist is a particular type of sign for Aquinas, it's actually really important to pay attention to the signs, although you might want to skip right to the cause because that um, seems to be the good part, right? That's the part where we change and we, we receive grace and we're drawn into divine life. But the sign is the instrumental means by which that's happening, right? And so the Eucharist is, there are lots of ways in, the, in which the Eucharist is a sign, but there are three basic ways for Aquinas, three basic ways. Um, it's a sacrifice, it's a communion, and it's viaticum. So we can think about it in those three ways. Those are three sort of directional signs. So as a sacrifice, it's pointing back, as it were, to the passion, the Christ's passion. As communion, it's a sign of what it's causing in the present, in the church. And As viaticum, it's a sign of where we're going. Viator in Latin just means a journey, or one on a journey, to go on a journey. And so viaticum is, is food for the journey, we might say, or a means by which we journey towards a future a future event. Okay, so the Eucharist is a sacrament because it's a sign in those ways and because it's an instrumental cause of something in particular. Um, I'll say just a little bit about sanctifying grace in this context, although we could spend a lot of time talking about this too. But um, the Eucharist is a particular means of causing sanctifying grace within the soul. Um, what sanctifying grace is, effectively, is uh, a change at the deepest level of the person. There are some accounts of grace, uh, let's say, um, in the popular mind, uh, certainly uh, that, that have been popular in certain brands of Protestant theology, which tend to view grace or sanctification as, as entirely extrinsic, as if it's simply snow covering up the human person or something like that. That's not what Aquinas means. and uh, That's not what St. Augustine or St. Catherine mean either. Uh, grace in this sense is really an intrinsic change at the deepest level of the essence of the soul. Um, and it's it's so powerful that it has the effect of changing. Um, it doesn't change us essentially, uh, as if we're now we're human persons and now we're something totally different, as if we're changed into elephants or something substantially different. But it bends, as it were, and renovates and renews and restores and elevates the whole of what Aquinas and the Thomistic tradition will call the analogy. Uh, that is the way we talk about that relationship between existing and then the possibility of potency, the whole scope of possibility for the moral life that lies open before us. All of that is, in a sense, sort of picked up a notch, elevated as it were. And what that means for Aquinas is that all of the possibilities of acting as image now are more than just a kind of distant representation. That's the Trinity, I kind of look like the Trinity, right, I'm an image of the Trinity. That's a good thing. That's the best thing in creation, but to be uh, to be grace, to be alive in grace is to be participating, as it were. That's only possible because of God's action, right? That's only possible because in sanctifying grace, God's really acting and moving in our hearts and recreating us, as St. Paul will tell us, making us a new creature in Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, all that is to say is that the effect of the Eucharist is divinizing, right? And what's happening to us in the context of the Eucharist is that we're being conformed to Christ through this process of what we could call sanctification or divinization. So the Eucharist for Aquinas is a means of conformity to Jesus Christ. This happens in at least two ways. So when we think about ourselves as elevated and sanctifying grace in that way where the whole sort of scope of possibility of our lives has been radically altered and changed and elevated. Things that were not possible before like communion with the with the eternal Trinity <laughs> are now possible in a radical way, not because of our moral good behavior, right, or because we earned it, or because we kind of earned it halfway. We didn't earn it at all, right? <laughs> has nothing to do with merit. Uh, it's just sheer gift, and it's more than an extrinsic gift. It's a divinizing gift which changes who we are. The author of our life, the author of our being, has intervened and elevated us. Um, so this has at least two effects. There are a lot of effects, but these are two that are important for our purpose. One, we can talk about moral acts, our moral acts, uh, and what that means in a sacramental context. And the other will be liturgical acts. Right? So let's talk about moral acts first. In a sense, I've already been talking about this. Um, you know, When we talk about the whole scope of potency in the moral life, all of that language about what's possible for the person and the need to act in image. What we can do now is be a little bit more specific when we look more closely at the the sacramental and liturgical context of that type of moral action. Now, when we're alive in Jesus Christ in that way, our whole moral lives change. Our life life on the subway, right? Our life on the walk home tonight, our life uh, anywhere changes because of that fundamental sort of ontological change within ourselves that's wrought by sanctifying grace. But there are specific types of acts that are proper to worship. Um, So Aquinas has a whole anthropology, we might say, uh, that has to do with a specific set of virtues which fall under under justice that he calls the the virtue of religion and the acts associated with it. Uh, We won't go into all the different parts of religion here, or how all that works. But there are a couple of things to notice here, and a a basic dynamic that I want to highlight. If we start with St. Augustine, in The City of God in Book 10, Augustine talks about the difference between interior and exterior sacrifice. So the sacrifice of the heart is signified, as it were, by exterior acts. So in the sacrifice of the heart for Augustine, we could also call that devotion, uh, a kind of interior reverence or longing for God uh, that is sort of welling up in faith, hope, and love within the human person. So we have that sense of an interior sacrifice, we might say. You can find language like this in the Psalms as well. Um, where the psalmist will talk about a, a kind of contrite heart, or a heart ready uh, for sacrifice, right? Uh, okay, so but there's an interiority leading to exteriority, and in this language, the exterior sacrifice is really just a sign of the interior one. Aquinas picks up on this, uh, this language of interior and exterior sacrifice, and uses it to talk about the way in which certain types of moral acts can be made into acts of worship. Um, and made into acts of worship in a more concrete way than we might be used to. Um, Our whole life can be an act of worship for God, of course, right? But even if you ask Aquinas, that's because we're sort of, whether we realize it or not, we're sort of gathering other parts of our lives underneath the the blanket of charity, underneath that sort of sacrifice, that act of sacrifice at the heart and exterior sacrifice as well. But we have this capacity to offer sacrifice, both interior, in, in an interior and an exterior sense, um, and those exterior sacrifices again are signs of interior sacrifice. Now, why is all this important? It's important because, for many reasons, but one reason to be aware of, uh, when Aquinas turns to the idea of liturgy, uh, which is what the Eucharist is, when we talk about, we can talk about the real presence in isolation. But the Eucharist or the Mass really is a a liturgy, which is an anthropological event. It's a ceremony. It's something we participate in and do collectively. Why do we do it that way, as it were? Why not do it a different way? Um, Why not uh, do it backwards or side to side or whatever? Right? Um, For Aquinas, there's a relationship between certain types of law and the ordering, the right ordering of the human person. So when he talks about the old law, uh, the law of Moses, and then also the new law of grace, both of those have specific types of liturgical law embedded within them. And that's important for Aquinas. And here he's not alone. He's building on Cicero. There's even a Roman precedent for this, uh, and certainly precedent within the Latin uh, theological tradition as well. But there's a sense in which exterior precept allows us to order, right? it allows us to order our, our inner hearts the acts of our hearts, right? Remember for Catherine, the whole point was to root ourselves in the soil of humility and to be planted in that circular pot, not the other one that's not round, <laughs> um, not the pot that we designed of our, of our own uh, free will, right, or, or out of our own pride, but the one that God sets before us. And um, without uh, adopting an undue legalism or rigorism, Exterior precept for Aquinas actually does, it frames, as it were, it provides a context for the interior actions of the heart to grow in the right direction, we might say. Uh, So having liturgical precepts, if you open up the uh, the Law of Moses, the Book of Exodus or Leviticus, Leviticus in particular, you'll find a lot of rules, right? a lot of rules, (laughs) Um, some of which might seem archaic to us today. mostly because uh, the law is out of and we don't follow it anymore for good reason, uh, because we're, we're alive in Jesus Christ. But the need for exterior crucif hasn't gone away because the human person hasn't gone away. Sanctifying grace hasn't changed us into elephants or something else. It's divinized and elevated us. So there's a new kind of law, and that, that law is liturgy, effectively. right? Uh, so the actions of the liturgy, um, even things like bowing or kneeling, genuflecting, processions, um, other types of exterior bodily actions that are prescribed by the church. Some of those are instituted directly by Christ in the New Testament. That would really be just the matter and form of the sacraments in most cases, right? But other times, church tradition, right, has a deep wisdom to it, which is ordering us, right? Um, law, when properly understood in this sense, isn't a constraint, right? It's an opportunity to thrive, it's an opportunity to flourish. Um, If you truly understand, if it comes from a a wise lawgiver, a true lawgiver, right? It's actually, if you ever see, um, I'm not very good at gardening, but certain plants need something to grow around, right? Uh, And, uh, you know, so it's a sort of structure like that that our life gets wrapped upon, you might say, right? Okay. Um, But we have to first understand ourselves as having that interiority and exteriority, for any of that to make sense. So when we look at something like... um, the Mass, and I know I'm running up against the end of my time here, but um, I want to highlight just a couple points from Aquinas' treatment of the Mass. Uh, again, all this is about conformity to Christ. So if you think about the Mass um, as having different parts or even different liturgies within it, you may be familiar with the difference between the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, that's that's uh, a common distinction. That really just means that there's the readings, right? Right? <laughs> And then there's the part where the priest consecrates the eucharist and then moves towards the consumption of the eucharist himself and the distribution to the faithful uh, aquinas picks up so after the homily after the gospel when the priest begins to consecrate the eucharist and begins to move into what we might call the eucharistic liturgy
1: in question 83
0: of the tertia pars of the summa aquinas has a really beautiful treatment of each part of the mass right and how it's leading us into a deeper conformity to christ's sacrifice that culminates in us liturgically offering a sacrifice of our own. Um, I won't go into all the details of that here, just for the interest of time. But uh, a couple movements that we could identify in that, uh, and again, this is about exterior precept, right? Uh, it's about the the way in which exterior precept has the ability to order the sacrifice of the heart and draw it out of itself into something larger, into communion, which is what the Eucharist is. Um, So we can think about the offertory, which is the very beginning of that Eucharistic liturgy, um, as the beginning, right, Um, a kind of oblation uh, in which the priest's prayer uh, is is asking effectively, right, that the uh, the offering be acceptable. Um, We can think about the consecration itself, which happens next, roughly, right? Um, We can think about the consecration itself. this is of course affected supernaturally by divine power. Um, but the devotion of the people is first stirred up by the words of the preface. So even if right before the consecration is another part of the Mass, again, if you're not super familiar with the text of the liturgy, that's okay. Uh, trust me, the preface comes first. <laughs> um, but the preface, if you if you pay attention, you can hear it. Uh, it's often sung. It's a long prayer that has um, it's different for different seasons, have different prefaces. Um, Different days, there's actually a lot of different options for the saints, but all of them are are prayers which are intended to stir up devotion. And so Aquinas is saying it's sort of preparing the inner sacrifice, right, Uh, to be ready to do exteriorly the things that we do at Mass, uh, and therefore be more deeply conformed to Christ, right, just by that liturgical act. Okay, so before the consecration, devotion is stirred up by the words of the preface. The sanctus follows Uh, as a further act of praise by the people, and the priest commemorates those on whose behalf the sacrifice is offered. At the consecration itself, the priest prays for those who will receive the sacrament's effects, then performs the consecration using the words given by Christ at the Last Supper. Finally is the reception of the Eucharist, um, first by the priest and then by the people. There's a great deal of debate uh, in the Dominican and Thomistic conversatorial tradition about the idea of the mass as a sacrifice and how specifically we should talk about that. We don't need to allow that to detain us here <laughs> this evening, but there are a lot of, a lot of uh, Dominican um, Thomists who see that, that act of consuming uh, the Eucharist. I think particularly Domingo Bañez uh, here and other, uh, other Thomistic theologians as well. We see that act of consuming the Eucharist first by the priests and then by the people as a kind of consummation of the sacrificial offering that's represented in those external acts of the virtue of religion that the liturgy is drawing us into. So we're becoming communion, as it were, through that corporate activity that we call liturgy. Okay. Um, There's a lot more that can be said about that, but um, since I'm actually out of time, but I'll close with uh, some more thoughts from Catherine of Siena, just to um, uh, to bring us full circle here. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, okay. um, another, another metaphor that Catherine has for talking about divinization, and uh, specifically the Eucharist, right, as a means of divinization, is the idea of water um, and fish in water, right? Uh, so Catherine, uh, when she herself receives the Eucharist, uh, when she comments on this in uh, the dialogues, you know, um, again, if you think of the whole liturgy, it's building up to that that uh, consummating moment where the sacrifice itself, we could say, is consummated in a sense through reception, uh, where the real presence of Jesus Christ is received. Uh, Catherine says that at that moment, you know, the the divine nature was in her, the way that water is in a fish, fish is in water, and water is in the fish, right? Uh, that she understands herself to be swimming, as it were, uh, in Trinitarian communion. So we can talk about an anthropology of Trinitarian image, an anthropology of sanctifying grace in the abstract, but where this becomes um, concrete in the real experience of our lives and in the real exercise of our moral lives, that movement from act to potency, is within the structure of the literature as a context for divinizing human action, uh, where we find this kind of heightened communion, uh, where we, we live, as it were, in the water as the fish the fish do, where we swim in the divine nature. Well, you know what, I'll stop there. Uh, I have more metaphors in Catholic, if you're interested, but <laughs> <than> I <laughs> I'll, I'll stop there for now, since I know about a time. And uh, I'd love to take your questions, if you have questions. Or how was the name of the Lord? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was wondering? Sorry, yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you could, uh, you, know, you said the need for he's happy to not go away at the sanctified grace, and you mentioned God's not. Uh, well sanctifying grace has an effect on us in an interior sense it does when we were baptized we were become ontologically a different yeah. being entirely there's a markation on our very existence yeah um and you mentioned how since sanctifying grace is interior and exterior um but i'm curious how it flows from the anthropology and the distinction therein. it's like if we we're to defend okay the need for the, the, the exterior sign as an actual um means by which our interior is affected. uh how do we debate that from the nature of humanity and mm-hmm. its relationship to sanctifying grace that sense okay yeah i think i think um, I'll, I'll i'll well let me know if i'm not on, on target here but I, what i think what i think uh, you're getting at is maybe there's a difference between what sanctifying grace is anthropologically and what's caused by the sacraments in that sense or why you would need one and place them together. Is that the it, soundtrack? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, the, the truth, um, a, a more technical answer, <laughs> yeah, if that's helpful, sometimes that's helpful, sometimes it's not, um, but a more technical answer from the Thomistic tradition would be um, that what the sacraments are causing are modes of sanctifying grace. So the later Thomistic tradition, John of St. Thomas and others from the 17th century and on, will develop a the, a way of talking about the you're not causing something different like you have sanctifying grace and then you're causing more of it in the sense of like okay so you could think about the sacraments or grace the life of grace uh, collecting graces in the plural like uh, like Happy Meal toys right or something like that or or you know whatever you know it's stuff you know and you sort of collect it all but the problem when you when you reify it as a subsistent thing like that like that individual whatever it was you got in the in the Happy Meal or whatever it is you know it's not actually part of you like it's not part of your essence so you you really need sanctifying grace to be like in you right <laughs> at the deepest core but then to also be caused and stirred up by sacramental encounter so by baptism uh but then also by sacraments that you receive all the time like the Eucharist and confession so the the short and maybe maybe uh, overly technical answer is that there are modes of sanctifying grace but that means that's a that's not a cop-out that's a real language of causality which means that this reality is being you can think of it being stirred up or, or um, stretched out or augmented in some ways right but that because sanctifying grace is really at the deepest core of who we are it's not like an extra lego piece sort of stuck on the outside or something like that right it really is a um a, a way of being right it's our, our fundamentally our, our way of being as humans has been um well divinize again we're not changed in a substantial way a substantial change of course is where you change from a snail into a turtle or something like that if you were into that um you know but um, where but if you talk about um the powers and potencies of, of a nature what the nature can do so qua nature uh, by ourselves as human persons we're not capable of the attitude right of, of uh, a trinitarian life in heaven that's just not um Aquinas is really clear when he talks about grace. It's actually a proper finality for us. We were made for beatitude, in a sense, because we're made as image, but we lack the potency, and that's the, the real key difference there. We lack the proportionality. So we have, we're have we in this difficult position, even if it hadn't been for original sin, which again, throws a wrench into the whole thing, and darkens our intellect, so we don't even realize who we are or what we're about. Um, but that uh, we, we have this kind of supernatural finality or this final uh, end, if you will, in the, in, the, in the final, final sense, which is Trinitarian communion, just because of what we are as image and what reason is, but well, we lack the proportionality according to our nature to act in a way that attains that end. And so the infusion of sanctifying grace, which comes with the, the, the virtues and gifts, so the, the virtues of faith, hope, and love, other types of infused virtues and the gifts of the spirit fixes that problem effectively. <laughs> the proportionality problem gets fixed. So that what we were made for is now becoming a reality as we as we grow into that, as we, in that second act, that sphere of potency or possibility is our is our moral lives. Uh, beyond the fact that we're human or the fact that we are in a state of grace, as we grow, as it were, um, and actuate our potency you know, along a certain path, you know, we become more and more participants in that supernatural finality, even in this life. Uh, although it will always be impartial, uh, certainly in this life, even for the greatest saints. Um, I mean, they know it better than most of us, that's you know, different, they, they know how, how imperfect they are, how much, how much they have left to do, you know. But that you know, that sort of journey is beginning in Central Time Grace, and the fundamental change has already happened even if there's a great deal of work left to do in the moral life. Sometimes the moral life has to do with with, uh, correcting faults. I used to act this way, and now I see that was super sinful, so I I try not to do that anymore, and I'm doing this other thing, right? Uh, But other times the moral life is um, more about collecting loose threads, right? Uh, There's a lot of things going on in my life that aren't clearly ordered by charity towards the worship of God. (laughs) Um, And that needs to change. Now, I mean, I might be able to make it. Uh, you know, I might, I might be, I might not be you know, falling out of the state of grace, to use that, that sort of catechetical language, as such. But um, I still have a lot of work to do, as it were. And um, charity, in this sense, can really become like the operating principle, might say, or the reason why you're doing even the most mundane of things, the most ordinary of things. Uh, so that type of growth in actuality, in the, in the. Second order act, if you will, the second dimension of our life, the moral dimension, sometimes it has to do with collecting those loose threads and, and driving them towards the purpose of worshiping God. And that's where the liturgy, like those external acts that we're asked to do, to structure us in that sense. They, they give us um, uh, a means of op- an opportunity to form the devotion of the heart, as opposed to we could just not do it, right? I mean, you could show up and, and resist that or not pay attention. But it, uh, those exterior acts draw us into the mystery and give us the opportunity to participate in that way. Um does that does that make sense with yeah. just, uh, yeah. just make sure I said it. it's like if you had a fire pit, set baptism is thrown start to the fire. Okay. And the sacraments are thrown blocks into the fire. Okay. That I like that. Kind of, I like that, yeah. Is that as much yeah. well, as sure that word yeah. yeah, it's that's on the right track. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah there's a sense in which you have a, you have certain types of risks before baptism just to get you there. So like we don't get credit for deciding to be baptized. That's that's God's initiative and God's grace already working in our lives. But you're you're right. Then uh, in a sense the like the life this whole life of sacramental like, sanctification begins with baptism, where you also get sacramental character, which is a whole other question. Um but that's a kind of indelible mark uh to use the Augustine's language, which is he uses the like like the the example of a military brand, right? Um, which would be like you know, the SPQR that you see in like uh, Spartacus or, or, or gladiator, whatever you, Uh, But, uh, but in some sense, in which the name of Christ, the, even the Cairo, that is sort of branded as it um, were on us in an indelible way. And his big analogy there, right, is that you can you can leave the church, uh, you can follow the sin, you can get into all kinds of trouble, but you'll never lose that. The same way that if you desert the army, you're still going to be marked right, in a this. Yeah. So it, so all of that starts with baptism, and, so, and there's a distinction there between whether or not we're sort of inside the church or outside, and the state of our moral lives which is so it's helpful to distinguish between character and grace for that reason alone. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah I like that Let's. See. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, you were exactly. So now, dealing on finality overall again. Yeah. 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 You mentioned how we have the finite, which is cap on the material, and the infinite, in this case, cap, the, the finite for cap, being made in infinite So, in terms of finality, it would mean that there have to be some form and That more so being in that as cap being, like, cap, more so the casting off of this finite it the form of the cap, into the infinite, is that more so in that be? Is this how in doing so? Is that kind of what you're doing I I think, yeah, I think you're on the right track. So so finality or end can be used in a lot of different ways. So anytime you perform a moral act, um, sometimes we think of, yeah, like any any human rational act is a moral act, right? It could be something super boring, it doesn't have to be, it could be like I'm just, I'm walking over this way now. Well, I mean there's a sense in which I decided to do that rationally, and that's distinct from what Aquinas and Aristotle would we'll call acts of man. Uh, Which is like, you know, your hair growing or something like that, which isn't a rational choice (laughs) Um, So my point they bring that up. is just that even to do that. I need an end I need a sense of finality and purpose so you could think about that in a formal or a final sense The final sense would be where I'm going which is over here, right? You know, you know, but there's a sense in which the the choice to do it uh, And the reason why I'm doing it has a kind of formality or motivating force to it. So the language of causality can help us to, to think more clearly sometimes about why, well, what it is that's going on and what we're doing. So when we talk about um, beatitudes in a specific way, yeah, um, you can apply a lot of those same distinctions there. So you can think about, if you think about um, the finality, the the, the end, if, if heaven is the, at the risk of over, drastically oversimplifying things, you know, <laughs> heaven is the goal, if you will, towards which I'm moving and uh, beatitudes. What's the formal principle by which I'm doing that? Well, you know, that's um, one way to to think about that is, is charity, or the, or the the whole theological organism, if you will, recreated in grace, uh, according to sanctifying grace, the infused virtues, and the gifts of the spirit. That that's the kind of formality by which that act is possible and which gives us the um, just the wherewithal, like the purpose, like I like like Humanizing acts, that's what I want. I, I want deeper participation. The more on fire you are with charity, the more obvious that becomes. You know? Um, it's one of the, the perhaps one of the, the, the saddest effects of original sin, right? It's the darkening of the intellect in that sense. We just lose we lose a sense of of the formality of human acts that should properly be there. Um, it, the, the least important stuff is the last to go. Uh, the lower passions and the lower nature, food, things like that. I mean, you're probably not going to make it too, off, too far without thinking about that, right? <laughs> uh, but the higher things, the higher truths of reason, the higher light of the mind, it, it gets harder, right, um, to, to see things for what they truly are. What's most difficult is to see things, all of reality, against the backdrop of Trinitarian exemplary, that all things are made in the likeness uh, of God. Uh, and in a special way the human person is made of image. Um, and, and it's just it's hard to see that, right? Uh, so we've lost the formality, let's say, which allows us to effectively perceive that. And certainly in the practical intellect, um, this is a little bit of a tangent that we with me. <laughs> I quite ascend between the speculative and the practical enough, which just has to do with the um speculative intellect because we are thinking about universal truths. Yeah. You know? Um Anything that involves abstraction, certain science or math or metaphysics or, or speculative theology, practical uh, deals with walking across the river, you know, like going over here. Um, but there should be connective tissue between the two, right, that the principles you know upstairs, so to speak, the principles you know and the a little bit of like are actively informing your other choices. Uh, and a lot of times, when you think about the moral life as being unraveled, as it were, sometimes it really is a nimble. Like we have habits or ways of thinking which are just are just straight up sinful and need to change, right? But there are other ways in which like the, the fabric of it is unraveled in a sense, it just lacks formality, you know, and that's its own kind of problem, which um, the life of grace over time, uh, through just the you know, living a deeper life of charity, through sacrifice and penance that that sort of stokes the flame of charity other practices like that extrinsic. To the act of charity, and that can help it, but that sort of thing uh, just it, it, it opens the eyes, if you want, the mind, and the heart, to see more clearly what is in fact the case, which is that we're made in the image of the likeness of God, and we're made for in That sense. Did I, did I answer your question, or yeah, okay. you did. Okay, all right, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess it's slightly tangential, but it's uh, pretty relevant. I think we talked about external precepts and the importance of them and the formation of the soul what about when it seems seems to us that the external precepts that are imposed on us are now our souls okay that's a great question um i won't ask you for a practical example right? <laughs> but, uh, um i think um i think it really depends on on the circumstance and uh so any precept that uh, that comes, let, so let's start at the top and work down. So there are different types of law, right? So you have divine, uh, you have divine positive. All this has to do with positive law, right? So the law of nature, those are intrinsic principles. So just the fact that my nature has a, a teleology to it—that's its own kind of lex sort or of law. But that's not what we mean here. We mean when you know the local governor or whoever says it's this way, right? And, and so um, so. A law from legitimate authority uh, that doesn't contradict the teleology of nature, doesn't contradict the natural law, finds that it should be obeyed. Uh, That's true of secular law and the law of the church also. Uh, But every lawgiver uh, within within their scope has a certain degree of prudence, a lot of them. That is to say, so the way prudence works, right? Um, Sometimes things are hot and cold or right or wrong. There's a lot of scope of human behavior though that's somewhere in between, and you have to make a good decision, right? Um, and there's probably five different, maybe fifty different things you could possibly do, which A aren't sinful and under some aspect seem helpful or seem good, right? A prudent man for Aristotle has the ability to balance that and do something in the practical or with the practical limb, uh, which is actually helpful. So a father or a family, for instance, um, uh, someone who, a boss at work, right, or anyone who has a certain authority over others in the natural sphere, is charged with this kind of prudential governance. You might say, which is a virtue, right? Um, if you're governed by someone who's unvirtuous, let's say, <laughs> or imprudent, you might have someone who's virtuous in, in many ways but lacks the virtue of prudence. Um, there's a possibility that laws could be um, not as helpful as they could be, right? Uh, but Aquinas will say they bind right up until they, the, the letter of the law itself really transgresses the moral law, right? Um, so I don't know if that's helpful uh, or not, but it's, it's, I think it's a way of sifting in some ways what types of laws we're talking about. And what, so let's say you, you are faced with a situation where you know, just in, a, in your judgment and experience, it seems that this particular precept is not helpful, possibly even mildly foolish, right, let's say. Right? Well, what I'm thinking yeah. it, it, it slightly more specific. Is, yeah. Because I don't want to get to, like, specific examples. Because sure. <laughs> that could be controversial. Too, yeah, yeah. But not that the law is, you know, attempting to bind you to do something that is sinful, but the law is binding you to do something that's going to change you. Your character to something less good in a way. Yeah, I think um, let's just take the example of a a civil ruler, right? Who who has who governs his kingdom foolishly, right? I mean, you know, uh, he's a legitimate king, uh, and you're his legitimate subject, but he's not a wise man, uh, and he does foolish things, silly things, uh, and you know, has all sorts of rules that aren't helpful and don't make sense. To the extent that they're binding laws, they're, they're true laws in as much as he has the the, the authority to make them, and they don't contradict natural law or divine law. Okay, um, it can be very frustrating to live in a kingdom ruled by by silly laws, right? Um, and um, I think uh, at a certain point, um, you know, yeah. Uh, so they're in as much as they're binding your valuable, but. Uh, Right? You're, you're not necessarily bound to think that they're the best of all possible laws, right? Or the best of all possible precepts. And if you feel, sometimes you might even make a, a subjective distinction that, like this particular um, precept, let's say, I recognize its authority. I'm not questioning its authority as such. Uh, I'm not saying it contradicts the moral law, but it's not helping me. It doesn't seem to be helping me. So there, I would start to cast about for other means by which I could help. Myself, on other types of means that would really uh, give me what I'm looking for. If it's in the spiritual life or something like that, you know, what's what's missing here? Uh, because you know, maybe maybe that's a question I could be asking myself you know, of, But I think, um, yeah. Uh, so the example I gave is extreme in terms of the, the, the fool, the uh, thing, and it's, it's all of his laws are silly, right? Uh, but I think in most practical human situations, you're going to encounter a certain degree of um, uh, fuzziness. Let's say where people's prudence is incomplete, and its practical implication is a little bit incomplete. Uh, and part of being part of a communion, whether it's a national communion of citizens in a you know, state or part of the church, also I think you know is. Um, is sort of leaning into the community of the group in a sense right They're like um, this is an imperfect situation but how can i in virtue be uh a source for greater good here you know that's it's going to build up the, the community rather than um, you know tear it down in some way or you know create some other, other kind of problem uh i don't know if that's if there, there is no easy answer it's okay. <laughs> but i don't know um you know, is that yeah. helpful at all or yeah yeah, yeah. just something i've been thinking about for yep. about a year and a half years. okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think there's there's a certain virtue to um accepting uh in accepting patience and humility uh situations that are beyond our control right with this you know uh, whatever whatever it is it's out of my hands i'm not the king uh you know i didn't I didn't make these rules, uh, but I'm you know I am going to, in due diligence, uh, do what's asked of me and um, work towards a better solution that way. You know, um, yeah, and I think that can apply to lots of, lots of things. You know, um, it can apply to life in, in a parish. With, with the, the liturgy, the ideal of the liturgy, as it exists in the St. Peter's Basilica, is not often what we encounter on a practical level, right? You know, um, it's. Um, but there's it's a, there's there's a beauty there, right, to the the practice of community in a particular place, uh, with all of its you know, imperfections sometimes, or or um, you know it's all of its, its humble uh, aspects, right? <laughs> um, but uh, if you lean into that, as a word of virtue, you know, there's there's a lot for you and for others there to, to be found you know, in the community, first, you know. um, and also sorts other aspects of life as well. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, just maybe kind of based on that was my question because when we were talking about the mask and we were talking about how when you receive the universal, not only get to connect with God, but you also get to connect with other people around you. Yeah, yeah. For me, getting to connect with uh, God and the finality of what like, the souls are doing really makes a lot of sense. But what value does that connect with others? Oh yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so um, in terms of communion, um, okay. So here's a way to think about it. Saint Augustine has that when he talks about charity. This is in his book uh, on Christian teaching, De Doctrina Christiana. It's also in a bunch of his other books, like his book on the Trinity and the City of God. So, anyways, but it, it's um, and the distinction has to do with, right with um, between use and enjoyment. Okay, um, well. I'll try not to make this an overly long answer, but um, so okay, so um, when you think about other other things in reality, the problem with the moral life for for Augustine after sin is that we are using, we're enjoying the things we should be using to enjoy the Trinity. If that makes sense. So we're we're made to be ordered morally towards enjoyment of the Trinity, and everything else is a kind of translucent sign, right? Uh, every material stuff that um, even beautiful things, uh, mountains, rivers, uh, whatever, you know, um, uh, frolicking animals, whatever you want to, you know, all sorts of nice things, right? That those, those beautiful things in creation are really meant to be, let's call them sort of translucent signs, so that you see them, but you see through them to the exit glare behind. It, right? So when you see them, you see God, in a sense. right? But so then what happened with original sin and that whole process of darkening we don't see the exemplar behind anymore, we just see the stuff, and so this, this disordered desire to possess right to, to have. I want those animals for, me, for myself, I don't know what I would do, but you know, I, want, I want all that stuff, I want the mountains too, and no one else can have them right or whatever. Right? <laughs> so, I that, that sense of um, that of absolute and creative goods. So, this can happen with people too, right? Um. The way Augustine deals with this, right? Uh, so, in one sense, you're only supposed to enjoy the Trinity. You're not supposed to enjoy other people as ends in themselves. As if you, again, if, uh, if you treated someone the way, the way I just described treating the mountains and, and the animals or whatever, if you were to treat someone else like that, that would be disrespectful, right? You know, and, uh, and abusive, right? In a sense, not respectful of, of their dignity. But the way in which uh, human persons, uh, you know, as image, right, are situated there, because they're an image of the Trinity, you you can um, you can enjoy the, the trinitarian image in them. So authentic love of your neighbor is enjoying that trinitarian image. That isn't really there in other stuff. You know, look, there's likeness in the in the mountains and the waterfalls and the whatever. You know, that, there's likeness, but there isn't trinitarian image. And so, when we say that I, I really enjoy nature, I enjoy being. Whatever hiking or whatever, which, which is great. It's, uh, but that's not the same thing as saying that I, I really need other people in a sense, right? To be in communion with other people means to enjoy that Trinitarian image as a means of enjoying God. Uh, so Augustine talks about sharing as accomplishing that in a general sense, but in a particular way in the liturgy. That's what we're doing, right? Um, and so, you know, uh, it's possible to have very small liturgies, right? could just be you and a priest. Uh, a priest with silver celebrate mass alone. But even if you read the liturgical books, that's actually not optimal. Um, and why? Because there's supposed to be uh, two or three gathered in the name of Christ, or more, 500 or 1,000, right? Um, and it's not so much the numerical multiplication, the more the better, uh, although everyone's welcome. We want everyone in, right, <laughs> into the community of the church. But um, it's really the... Uh, that sense of the other as a particular type of image that in the liturgy in, in a special way anytime time we view others in charity or love and charity, this happens but in that context of the liturgy to be um, engaged in that kind of corporate activity with others that like uh we're, we're going to if you, i mean, if you notice in, in the chapel today we we have a, a very um sort of bottling liturgy there's a lot of bowing right a lot of corporate action you know, you're um, you're sort of moving as a group a lot uh, when we pray the Divine Office. Uh, but all that uh, those are signs, but where there's there's import that is done together as a group uh, and not done privately or something in, in you know uh, in, in individual rooms or something like that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, but what the idea is that we're going to see that image in others and actually enjoy it. Uh, you know, that uh, there's a, there's a certain list of enjoyment of the other as an image. And any Christian community, I can say certainly, from religious community, is meant to—it's um, it, meant to foster this kind of Trinitarian and joint, to use Augustine's language. Uh, and so is any type of community. Uh, um, it doesn't matter what state of life you're in. Um, but that's—that's that's the way the church works. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. One more question. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I, I, I would um, like to know a bit about how the divine office, uh, like in St. Thomas Aquinas, thought this uh, how does this feature in relation to to the Eucharist? There's both the divine office and and the Mass of Liturgy. Mm-hmm. But well, well the reason I ask this now is that the state of the Divine office's public celebration in mm-hmm. the Latin Church, I mean in the current day, it's not uh, I mean it's kinda of, sure. kind of gone yeah, um, that, and I think that of it might be that uh, that people kind of stand like going to mass to receive communion, but I but I don't think there's much of a connection between like the divine office yeah and the mass. Yeah, that's a great question. So as a counterpoint, um, as you may know, the the Eastern churches, many of them at least, uh, Eastern Catholic churches, and even these Orthodox churches that are communion with us. The situation is almost reversed in the sense that you normally would only have the eucharist on sundays you wouldn't have daily mass but you'd have daily divine office with the priest or deacon officiating and people would go to it the same way if you go to a parish church there's people there uh 7 o'clock in the morning or whatever you know for, for daily mass um so um that is to say there's let's say in the in the lived experience of the Latin of church there's a, there's a strong emphasis on daily mass As kind of an everyday sort of liturgical nexus of of a lot of people's uh, spiritual liturgical lives. So, for Aquinas, one example you might think of is um, so for the Feast of Corpus Christi, he wrote the entire office, the office that's still used in the Roman Greek, where he wrote, right? Uh, So, he sees. the hymns. Sometimes you find those hymns, like the Panje Lingua or these other hymns, just sort of isolated or used at adoration, which is cool. That's that's a good way to use it. <laughs> but like those things were meant to be used as specific text within the liturgy, right? Uh, as the sort of culmination. Anyways, so it used in, in um, an older version of the Divine Office, particularly for Vespers and Lauds. The hymn is actually the center point of the office. So you sort of climbed up the mountain of the psalms, and then there was this hymn, you know. Um, some of the, the Meyer arts didn't work that way, but you had this kind of uh, culminating moment. Uh, but so to be sort of led towards this sort of uh, summit where you're singing a deeply theological hymn about the Eucharist uh, is, um, I think, would be a good example of how for Aquinas the Divine Office prepares you for the Mass. Um, and even if you look at like. Um, the general instruction of the Roman Hebrew today, uh, which is just, if you have a copy of Roman Greek, which you very well may not, that's fine. <laughs> uh, but it's a four-volume, and in the, in the first bottom is a, a long theological introduction, which talks about the, the psalms as a, a special way of preparing ourselves for other forms of liturgy, to the high point of the mass. You know? So there's definitely a deep and intrinsic relationship between the two. And I think in lived experience, this is certainly, I mean, this is, this is what uh, more, let's say, pre-modern religious communities, uh, <laughs> religious communities founded before the Council of Trent, like us, uh, and like the Benedictines do, basically, as uh, a way of living out um, the uh, well, the virtue of religion. If you're not a Cartesian, right? Uh, if you're not, kind of, if you don't think that, um, if you don't have a rationalist conception of the soul floating in a bat or something, if you if you think that the if you're a moderate realist use quantitative language, you think the body's important not absolutely, but it's it's a part of being human, uh, is to be a, a soul uh, united to a the body, then it actually becomes pretty spiritually significant what you do with it, right? Uh, you know, uh, and to have liturgy as a way of sort of shaping that, not not, not just individually, but corporately uh, and socially, is actually really important uh, for us, no matter what state of life we're you know uh, get through. So, okay, for All right, great.